Wayne Grudem writes, it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection, more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe, end quote. Uh, We are approaching a mystery. Uh, We have been and we land upon it today that honestly our minds cannot fully grasp. Let's just put that upon the table. But we must say that it's something that scripture clearly teaches. God became a man. Incarnation is enfleshed. God enfleshed himself uh, in humanity uh, without diminishing his godness. This is what we'll talk about in a moment. The implications are just staggering if this really happened. And we believe it did. And though we can't get our minds around it, I will say this, God has given us enough information, okay? He's given us enough to trust it, to believe it. How might we say? To have faith that it's true for me. I could not give you a better uh, Christology than Michael uh, did a week ago, and if you missed it, I encourage you to watch it. When I say Christology, it's the study of Christ. Of course, it wasn't complete because he didn't have time, but he took us through those first few verses and all the way down to verse 13, and we noted, you know, that as, as John begins his gospel, you know, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, the word was the light of men. The, 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 word was, the word was created through the word. All of that's about the deity of Jesus. When you hear that word deity, it's the, the godness of Jesus, that Jesus himself uh, was God. This morning, we're not gonna look so much at the fact, the fact of the incarnation, but the implications of the incarnation. Uh, What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? What does it, quite frankly, what does it mean for every person on the planet that this has happened? Uh, According to John, um, it means you see this in the text, it means when you, we see the world and understand the world, understand there is, there is darkness and there is light. There is death and there is life. There is hopeless, hopeless. And there is hope. And there's really no compromise of the two. They stand at these polarities, these extremes. It's that stark. There's a line drawn. You're either here or you are here. There's no standing on that line. We don't often think about the Christmas season and those stark uh, realities, but the Bible does. And I really can't think of a more appropriate message for us as we're, you know, we're heading into the Christmas week. If we really, y'all, and, and you know, we say this, I don't know, it's on cards, a little bit old, dated, but you know, let's put Christ back in Christmas. Well, if you wanna put Christ back in Christmas, get ready for what it means. Not out there to the world, I'm not saying that. 
what it means to you and what it means to me. I want you to open your Bibles, please, to John chapter one, verses 14 to 18. Uh, We are in the Advent season. We've taken the first 18 verses of John's gospel. It's called the prologue, the beginning of his gospel. It's a section in and of itself, and we're gonna catch the back end of it this morning. Uh, This is John's description of the birth of Jesus. And you know this, we've read it. He begins with such a cosmic view, it's staggering. But now he's gonna end with such a close-up. Honestly, he's gonna use a word that's kind of offensive. It gets so close, makes us uncomfortable. Now, when we read John's telling of the birth of Jesus, don't expect the familiar casting characters at all. Uh, there's no manger scene. There, 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 there's no star. There's no angels declaring glory. There's, there's no trip of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. There's no feeding trowel with the little baby in it. It's not there. But I'll tell you what, the birth of Jesus is there, just not in the way we normally envision it. Start in chapter one, verse one. Let me take the first five verses for it sets us up for our part, 14 to 18. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh. Merry Christmas. And that's it. That's the Merry Christmas in John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We're asking the question this morning, what are the implications of the incarnation? I'm gonna give it to you in three words, provision or presence, provision and proclamation. So outline for those outline takers, think of it this way, we'll move through it in, it's about presence, it's about provision and it is about proclamation. Um, It is a jolt to us. Let's talk about the presence of God in Christ. It it jolts us to read that the word became flesh. I assure you it did the original readers. And part of it for us is, is that Greek word sarx, and it's a word Paul uses, and we think of flesh, we often get over into further into the New Testament where Paul speaks of the flesh as that abiding principle in every human being, every baby born that is bent away from God. We have a principle of rebellion against God in us. We inherited it from our fathers, mother and father Adam and Eve. And we think, oh, that's the flesh. Well, This is not what John means when he uses it here. He's simply saying that God has taken on flesh, 
you know, a human body and skin and tendons and blood and veins, and organs, and, he's, and, and God has taken on human, a human nature, but it's not a fallen nature. It's so important to understand in the, in the incarnation, um, it is not God, you know, there's 50% God and there's 50% man and they come together and now we have the God, man, Jesus, half of each. That's heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. The incarnation is 100% God, 100% man, in the one person, Jesus, fully God, fully man, neither godness nor humanity diminished. Now, if that's hard to get your mind around, you know, we're all in good company. You know, it took the church about 450 years to hammer out a doctrinal statement around this because there were people saying, well, he, he appears to be man, but he's not. Oh, there, there could, there's no way God could become a man. And they hammered the statement out at the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 450 AD. I've got a few words from that, uh, that statement. I'm just gonna read them to you. I'm read them slowly because it's so meticulous. Jesus is truly God and truly man. One and the same Christ. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. Fully God, fully man. I want you to say that with me. Fully God, fully man. This is the incarnation. And you may say, well, what's, what's, the, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Well, the, there's a number of reasons. I'm gonna simplify it to these two, if I may. Uh, Jesus had to be fully God or he, he could not satisfy the wrath of an infinite God. You understand, we, sin is against an infinite God. The, the, there's wrath that must be satisfied. How much? Infinite wrath, in a sense. God wrath. He had to be fully God if he were gonna die in our place. Now, he had to be fully man if he were going to die. <laughs> That's the crux of it. Fully man in that we all know that our high priest can relate to us, identify with us, yes. But at, at the end of the day, God can't die. And so he had to be fully man. Y'all, our greatest problem in the world for every human being, according to the Bible, is that we are separated from God. We're separated by our sin. The penalty of sin is death. We, got, we have a death problem. And until we take care of that, we... All the other problems don't matter. Jesus had to die in our place and he had to be fully man to die. Now, speaking of his presence among us, you know, the text says that he dwelt among us. It's, a, it's the Greek word skenao. Uh, it's literally the word used of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting. And when the original readers would read this, you know, they would 
you know, we kind of go, and he dwelt among, okay, he was around us. He, hang, he hung out with us. No, 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 he, he tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. This is the image that would come to their mind, and it would immediately take them back to the Old Testament tabernacle. And that was a, the place called the, the, the tent of meeting. You recall when God brought the nation out of Egypt, they're, they're in the wilderness. Oh my gosh, there's a tent behind me. How about that? We'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, they brought him out in the wilderness and God put his presence uh, among them, how? In a tent. And he had Moses build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with very specific uh, guidelines and, and the way everything was put inside of it because that was the presence of God among God's People. Y'all, it wasn't at the far side or on the edge. It was in the center of the camp. And everyone knew that God is the center of us and us as a people. It was there that the glory of God resided. It was there that Moses would go and meet with God. This is where the sacrifices were made. It was all about God, you see, in a very visual representation of the tabernacle. His presence, he says in John, is no longer the tabernacle nor even the temple. It's in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. It's way better than the tent of the tabernacle. He couldn't, how do I say this? He couldn't get any closer to humanity than to be a human being. God has pitched his tent among us. He's here as a man. You know, that wasn't true in the Old Testament. It was his presence, yes, but the fullness of his presence in Jesus Christ. That's the presence. Let's talk about the, the provision of Christ in this text. The provision of the incarnation. Three times it says, um, well, two times it says grace and truth, grace and truth, but then it says grace upon grace. And it, and it, it describes in each of those the fullness of, of, of his grace we have all received. I want you to note here, first of all, because I want to be careful we don't miss this, verse 17. Do not picture that as you know, there was no grace and truth in the Old Testament. That didn't happen until Jesus came. That's incorrect. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not setting these in contrast. Uh, John, every gospel writer, Paul, the, the Bible itself takes the scripture, the, the, the words of God, the word of God, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and holds it up. Psalm 119, it's beautiful, it's sweet, it's amazing, it's glorious, it's true, it's right, it's holy. It's not the law that's the problem, it's the application of the law. And of course, John and others in our Mark study, they're gonna, you know, Jesus goes after those who misuse the law. No, 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 there was grace and truth in the law. There always has been, there is. But oh my, you understand, the law was always pointing to something more. And there's grace and truth now in Christ Jesus, you see, that even supersedes the law. says this word grace and truth. Um, it's certainly grace being uh, the unmerited favor of God, yes. And uh, truth, um, 
truth is the, it, it matches reality. We certainly get that. But there's, there's something else here and, and uh, one of the commentaries I, I studied caught this and, and it helps us say, okay, grace and truth. What, what, what's the, what, what, what is he saying to us here? Uh, Kostenberger writes this. Let me read it and then I'll try and explain it a bit. It says, in John's gospel, grace in conjunction with truth alludes to the Old Testament phrase, hesed. Remember that word? Loving God's steadfast love. In this expression, both loving kindness and truth together, you see, refer to God's covenant faithfulness to his people Israel. According to John, this faithfulness found ultimate expression in God's sending of Jesus, his one-of-a-kind, when you read that word, only begotten, that's one-of-a-kind son, end quote. Okay, Lord, what do you mean? Well, he's saying, when we read this, grace and truth, grace and truth, that, that he's referring to the faithfulness of God. In other words, that Jesus came is the fullest, most complete statement, representation, declaration that God is faithful. God keeps his word. Declared broadly and loudly in the coming of Jesus Christ the fullest expression of his faithfulness to us. Now, he says, out of the fullness of that, out of the fullness of that, we receive grace upon grace. And the idea is that it never ends. It's about grace and then 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 it's never gonna run out. I need grace in this moment and we receive grace and and then you step over, I need grace and we need grace and it's there and I need grace in the next moment and it's there. Martin Luther kind of captures this, I think, in a wonderful statement. He says this, the sun is not dimmed and darkened by shining on so many people or by providing the entire world with its light and splendor. It loses nothing. Thus Christ is a well with no end, the chief source of all grace. Even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform every person into an angel, still it would not lose as much as a drop. How much grace is there from God? Endless. And you know, when you think about the Christian life in this way, and of course we balance it with the whole of scripture, but here it's saying the Christian life is about the reception of grace. No, I thought the Christian life was about, it's about receiving God's grace. It's about resting in his grace. It's about drinking of his grace. And oh, when we receive, and we'll talk about this in a moment, when we receive his grace, I'll tell you something, you can't hold it. It goes through you and goes beyond the presence, the provision, and let me quickly hit the proclamation and then apply this. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That word explained is the Greek word uh, exegete. 
And it means to explain something. You might have heard us talk here at Fellowship. We, we do expository teaching where we exposit a passage and exegete it. We exegete the verse, the verse, the verse as we go through it. What does it mean? We, we ex- as best we can, we explain it. I like this other phrase that it, it, you could say, it is to give a full account. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus gives a full account of God the Father. How about that? I don't want to be misunderstood, and if there's anyone here who, who you're wrestling with, what God is like, can I ask you to consider this, if you would? Um, if you're going to go after that, and it's a worthy endeavor, what is God like? Um, and you even, and you, and you know, the only place to go is your Bible, of course. But be careful that you don't fall into that kind of binary thing where someone might go, well, oh my gosh, the God of the Old Testament is so mean. And the God of the New Testament is so, seems so nice. It's, the Bible does not separate itself in that way at all. And if you wanna know what God is like, if your definition of God is anything other than Jesus, then you have not, seen, nor are you understanding who God is. That's the implication of this, men and women. You know, I can't believe a God would allow this. Or God, I mean, I wrestle with some of those things too, but at the end of the day, the Bible says you want to know what God is like. God the Father. Jesus is the exact explanation of him. How is it that Jesus is the only one who can do that? How is it that he's so uniquely qualified? Well, I think we catch it in verse 18 when it says that the only, he, the only begotten God, who's speaking of Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, we, we, this, we, we never say that word in the bosom of somebody, you know, but it's, it's an idiom that's, that speaks of relational closeness. That's what the idea is. And when you even just hear the word, even though we don't use it much, you go, well, they're really close. Well, absolutely it is. To be in the chest of, the bosom of, the father. It's that filial family closeness. There's no one who's got access, closeness, intimacy with the father like Jesus. Therefore, there's no one else that can tell us what he's like but Jesus. And it goes even further, and, and, and that's why I talked about the, the, the relational closeness, because you get this sense out of the word even of the love of the Father, the love of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father. A beautiful image. Our son Darden is home from college. He's a junior over at UT, and he got home last Saturday, and I think it was Monday or Tuesday, we were sitting in the living room, and I don't know, was flipping through his wallet or something, and he... He said, hey, dad, do you know I, I, got, I keep a picture of you in my wallet? I have no idea that he, 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 has a, he keeps a picture of me in his wallet. I said, no, no, no way. He says, yeah, he says, I, I got this one. He says, it's not very good because I actually took a picture of a picture. He said, but I keep this in my wallet. I want you to see this picture. And he showed it to me. And then he said this. You know, we're just sitting there and, he, and yeah, you, are you on at the glasses or what? What is it? Um... And then he said, I keep this one because you look so happy. I am. You, you could not take that 
joy out of my body. No dad in the room that hasn't held a child on their chest and felt the heartbeat of that child and not been happy beyond belief. Jesus, in the bosom of the Father, you see. So Jesus was not taken from his father's arms. Could you imagine someone trying to take my son from my arms? I don't know, you know, something bad would happen to any dad who someone tried to take their baby from their arm. Well, Jesus, you know, wasn't ripped from the father's arm. Get this. He said, I'll go. He said, I'll go. You understand when he raised, you know, I'm being silly here, but when he said, I'll go, you understand, I'll go die. That's what it meant. I'll go die. Die for who? Die for those people who hate you. Die for those people who have rebelled. Die for those people who reject. I'll go die for them. And he freely went. And by the way, think about it from the father's perspective. Now I'm the dad, okay? Uh, I don't know that anybody can rip my son from my arms, but the father did not let Jesus go and go, oh, no, 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 don't, don't. What does Isaiah tell us? It pleased the father to crush the son. Y'all, this isn't cruelty. This is love. So the father freely sent the son, not begrudgingly. Now here's where it just hits. And both of them did it so that me and you can crawl in to our father's lap. That's what it means in the bosom. So that me and you, and men and women, ultimately we could say this so many different ways. You understand that you and I were created to be in the lap of our father. That's what we were made for. Now we're not born in that, but it's what we were made for. It's what God most desires for us. And it's why Jesus came. What kind of love are we talking about here? Well, let's apply this if we may. Let's talk about this tent of all things. Why do you get the tent up here? Well, because God pitched his tent among us. This is Merry Christmas. And I want you to understand this, in this tent is light. In this tent is life. In this tent is hope, joy, love, peace. Take every loss in your life. Take every pain, every hurt, every struggle. Take every sin. You know, when you miss perfection, you miss the mark. We're not holy. Take every time you've known the right thing to do and you didn't do it. Take every time you knew it's the wrong thing, but you did it anyways. Take every rebellion, every act of selfishness. Take every doubt and fear. Take every self-loathing, insufficiency. Take take all that is not God. Take the, the flesh in the sense of our fallenness. Take all of it and your longings and hopes and understand this. The balm The healing, the restoration for those, it's in there. It's not out here. I mean, you can look for it out here. 
and you can actually find a few things that kind of help, but not finally and fully. Y'all, it's in there. Now, the thing about this is, is you go, it's a tent. I know. I could pick it up and move it. I know. If I pushed on this, the whole thing would, I know. It's so, let's be honest, it's pretty wimpy. He was just a baby. Mom and dad just trying to make it. Couldn't even get a room somewhere to stay and they're in the manger. Put him in a feeding trough. I know, just nothing there. It says it, the glory was there. Yeah, but that doesn't look like the kind of glory I'm used to. I know. So you're gonna put your whole hope and confidence in that. I mean, he could die before he's three. People, you know, babies die all the time. I know. Just not much there, I know. Now we can stand outside of this our whole life and we can even get close to it. Let me say this, you can get so close, close to it, you can go, yeah, that's Jesus. Do you know who he is? Yeah, he's the son of God. Yeah, that's right. I really like him. <laughs> I really respect him. It's great. It means nothing. I don't care how close you are to it or how far you are from it. It means nothing until you receive it. Isn't that what John said? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What does he mean received him? Until you put your trust and confidence that what Christ did and who he is, he did it for you. He did it for me, you see. And that's the picture Paul uses of being in Christ and Christ being in us. So I'm gonna tell you something, until you go in the tent, it means nothing. But in the tent, in Christ, it begins to dawn on you clearer and clearer and clearer. Oh my, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for anyone in Christ Jesus and I'm in him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I understand that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. What is blurry and foggy outside becomes clearer and clearer and clearer inside. 
but it's just a tent. <laughs> I know. This is the incarnation. And being in Christ is everything. Men and women, every, think about the Advent, every hope, love, joy, and peace. All of that is pointing to the Christ candle, which we'll light on Christmas Eve. None of these exist apart from Christ and being in Christ. I I do want to say this because I think it fits the metaphor well. The truth of the matter is, if the tornado sirens went off and one's bearing down on us, you know what you're supposed to do, right? When the tornado's coming, you're supposed to go to what? Where are you supposed to go in your house? The safest place? Can I tell you, you know, all of us would look at this and go, well, I'm not getting in there. <laughs> you know, honestly, go, don't get in there. And that's what, that's what we do when we don't know Christ. We go, I'm not getting in that. That's not safe. And the reality is, y'all, there is no safer, more secure place on the planet than being in there. The fullness of God's faithfulness is in there. The only certain thing in the whole world, because there's just nothing certain, except one thing, God keeps his promises in Jesus. This is our great certainty, and this is our great hope, and the question for us is, where are you this Advent season? Are you walking around it? Even admiring it? Or are you in it? If you've placed your faith in Christ, trusting him, you're in it. Are you resting in all that he is? And if you haven't, then you're outside of it. The invitation is always, come on in. Trust me. Trust that what's true of me is true for you.